Yeah, well, mine, I mean, mine seems pretty clear cut, so I'll go quickly. Um, Yes, Sam, you're the teacher's pet. We get it. (laughs) You're welcome, Brevin. Well, so here's the thing. You didn't get your notes in until basically it was too late for anyone to read them. So who who knows what, what your section is about? What's there to read? It's so simple. Don't put your kids in other people. And there's the opening <laughs> soundbite right there. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Problem with Reading, recorded in 2024. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And I'm Allison. That's right. We have Allison, our resident, uh, definitely paid bioethicist, back for round two. Uh, because since we last spoke to her, things have taken a turn for the better, as a matter of fact. Everything's hunky-dory. Um, all the conundrums are are, are, are are only on the up. So we're looking forward to hearing from her and all the great things happening in the field of bioethics. But because everything is so rosy, we don't need to rush into that. We can sort of ease into it. Uh, so first, Allison, what are you drinking right now? I got a drink that was not water specifically so that I could tell you I'm drinking grapefruit juice. And no, it is not spiked. I'm too tired for that. But it tastes pretty good. Fair enough indeed. Uh, Sam, how about you? Um, I'm just having a glass of uh, Merlot. Very cheap Merlot but it's fine. Yeah, good. That is one thing that we've learned is that Sam keeps the price tags on all the bottles of wine in his cabinet so that he can report out on their relative costing. Uh, As for myself, I am having some wine, also very cheap, although I just remembered what the price was. Uh, Although it's it's sort of like a mix of sangria. It's like a weird sangria thing. I just got creative. It didn't turn out very well, Um, but such is life. Steven, how about you? Well, I had uh, two friends originally from Washington road trip out to Seattle and deliver me my favorite uh, beer called Irish Death. And I recently found a stash of it that uh, I hadn't gone through before I uh, I moved houses. So I've been uh, polishing off that and I have that. Wait, so wouldn't that just be like English ale then? Touche. How many potatoes does it take to kill an Irishman? Zero. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> Well, I figure, you know, we're going over medical ethics and whatnot. I mean, you know, what's what's a little death? Yeah, the starvation of the Irish was definitely a medical ethics issue. Absolutely. Starvation is a medical Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, maybe they needed some, I don't know, diets or something. But no, no, but the real thing is, you know, a modest proposal. And, you know, like maybe we should just eat all the children, um, you know, uh, to help to help the poor. Uh, but speaking of helping the poor, Allison, how is medical assistance in dying or made doing in the great northern state of Canada. What is that speaking of helping the poor? <laughs> the, the prevalence of May, right? Yeah, I guess that is oh, how goodness. the poor uh, see is their only other option, but I don't know if anyone would characterize it as helping. Um, it's, it's interesting timing. I don't know when this podcast will come out, but in March of 2024, Canada is supposed to decide with their great... Uh, I don't know who's on there. Brevin termed it the emergency bioethics committee. (laughs) Whoever it is that makes these decisions. Um, They're supposed to decide if people with uh, mental health conditions qualify for what they call medical assistance in dying or made. Um, which is probably more accurately termed assisted suicide um, or even euthanasia, depending on the method of it and how involved the patient actually is versus the healthcare professional just doing it to them. So th- th- it's it's controversial because it much like helping the poor, helping the suicidal or the mentally ill, um, 
is now taking on this dimension of maybe death would be better for them because we can't help them in life, like almost as a substitute for, in a a medical sense, good palliative care, or in a social sense, like a social safety net, good housing, um, access to food or mental health support or what have you. There's a lot of different reasons that somebody might decide that their life kind of sucks. Um, And Canada seems to be rapidly expanding assisted suicide to cover all of them, Um, to the point that it's almost a cautionary tale for the rest of the world, which is saying something because the rest, some other parts of the world, like the Netherlands, are leading figures in the euthanasia movement, but even they think Canada is going too far with MAID. So yeah, Um, I, I guess it really does come down to that idea of what's helping. If you treat it like a preventative or a preventative thing that you're going to give somebody death because otherwise you anticipate they're going to have all this suffering, then that just kind of tells people that they can make this reasonably, that it is part of reason to make a determination that they their life is uh, worse than it ever could be, which is not a rational thing. I, 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 that's why I say that you're, you're almost making an impossible determination, like a rational determination that your life is never going to get better. And it's always going to be terrible and you don't have enough support. And so therefore you may as well just die. I think that kind of thinking makes more sense to people at the very end of life, with which is why medical assistance in dying always starts with terminal conditions. Because when you get like a really terrible prognosis, people can kind of understand that like, okay, yeah, I, that basically what this means is I'm not going to get better. So they understand why, it, that's why it seems more rational to people to say like, well, may as well just die at the very end of life. But in the middle of life, or really at any point in life, when you just are going through a downswing, or if you've struggled with something that's treatment resistant, like anorexia or depression, that's that's what the current controversy is about, should that be considered helping them to facilitate the mental illness instead of trying to combat it, or at least blunt the effects of it. Yeah, and I think the, the part of it that's most concerning, well, aside from the fact that it's intrinsically evil, but aside from that, the, the part that's most concerning is the increase of it and the the article that that you shared with us that we will uh link in the episode is you know talking about you know now it's 4.1 percent of all canadian deaths uh in 2022 which is a 31 percent increase year over year from 2021 who knows what it will end up being for 2023 but alongside that increase has come right alongside that like like you said the uh this continual expansion of who quote unquote qualifies for the service which started with you know um, intolerable suffering as being the mark and then moving to people who you know aren't who might suffer but death is not on the uh you know on the immediate horizon and horizon and then now coming up in just a month or two mental illness uh and there have been lots of individual horror stories of people being pushed in the direction of uh made that i think we've talked about previously um but it seems that despite all of this, there's been no slowing down of this just ongoing um, uh, <laughs> train wreck of a uh, medical system. Yeah, I, I think there can't be a slowing down because it's not an objective determination. It's a subjective determination of the patient and kind of of the healthcare team taking care of them, too. I think it probably ends up being a joint decision in a lot of cases that... Uh, yeah, the, the, this person can just decide this isn't worth it anymore. That's not something that we can put a number of statistics to or like I can measure or something like that. That's very unique. And and the sad thing is, we I think the reason it's probably easy for some healthcare professionals to make that kind of determination is we do that all the time when it comes to not moving forward with a certain treatment or stopping a certain treatment. We make that, I mean, that that's a constant conversation, especially in my job, like whether something is really worth it. But in, but in this case, the something isn't like 
a surgery or a medication or going back to the hospital or something like that, which are more clearly morally optional things for people. The something is your life itself, is living itself optional. Um, and, and this line of thinking says, yes, it is. We should be able to decide that we're not going to live anymore. And so that's why th you can't put the brakes on that. Because once you have that line of thinking, like the moral end game of it has no built-in safeguards. And, and I think that advocates of this kind of realize that because all of the rhetoric in legislators, both in legislatures, excuse me, both in Canada and in the United States where this has been debated, are they're emphasizing access. They don't really want any focus on the fact that these are vulnerable populations and that maybe there should be safeguards um, because somebody with severe mental illness or somebody with severe physical illness ought to be uh, cared for or like supported against the idea of I just want to end my life, which is traditionally what medicine would have said. I mean, my grandparents, who were both doctors, would never have ever said something like this to a patient. That's That was never part of the ethos of medicine. But it's kind of creeping in because as healthcare professionals, I think often we don't really want to impose our own will on the patient. That's becoming very gauche, very paternalistic, very my grandparents' generation of medicine and not our generation. And so we don't want to impose anything. And so there, there's we're kind of ceding more and more ground to whatever the patient wants. And so then the, the moral... The only moral dimension of it really becomes expanding it to everybody. It should be available to minorities. It should be available to the disabled. It should be able to or available to be available people. to children. Yeah, exactly. It should be available to teenagers. I, I think the article, I think it was this article, mentioned that there was, uh, I don't know if it was the author or someone that the author knew, but there was a 19-year-old relative that just kind of expected like, okay, yeah, when I decide it's my time, then I'm going to do that. And it becomes this cultural expectation of like control and this is just the way that a good death is. I think probably largely because they, they don't have any concept of life after death or yeah, they probably, I, I would imagine that 19 year old and, and young people like him probably think life is just about, I don't know, hedonism maybe, like just enjoying what you can. And then if you don't think you can anymore, then that's it. That, that's, that would be my guess. But anyway, that, that becomes the moral push is like, well, we just got to make sure this is available to as many people as possible and normalize it as much as possible, destigmatize it. Like those healthcare professionals who say this is awful and they won't participate, <laughs> they're just like, we, that, that, that almost is like anathema to this type of mindset because you should, you should just, you're actually, this came up in a meeting just the other day in my, uh, with my team, like speaking of the patient, your goal is our goal. Whatever the patient wants, we want. We're just here to facilitate. We're just here to be the technicians. That I think that's kind of where the healthcare mindset is trending, which is really troublesome because it, it means that we're just abandoning the idea that there's something that's good for a patient that the patient could be wrong about. Not saying every patient is ever wrong about it, but I mean, also the funny thing is every single healthcare professional has definitely dealt with situations where like the patient or their family is dead set on something and you're like, you're just wrong. Like you might be factually wrong. You might be morally wrong, but you're wrong. This is not what's going to be good for you. And you can have varying levels of success in trying to convince them of that. But um, yeah, I, for whatever reason with assisted suicide, it's, there's kind of this like kid gloves or back off approach of like, there's no way that we could tell someone that they're wrong to want to commit suicide, which has really troubling, uh, after effects, if you think about like teenagers that are suicidal or even children that are suicidal with like the rising mental health crisis across the Western world, it's it's just, I think. Do you even have, have any fun. means? Like, like, do you even define that as a, as a, like a problem? Do you, do you define that as an illness at this point? Mm -hmm. I know or that's my question because I do, because I don't participate in assisted suicide. So I, 
I can say pretty consistently, I think that, yeah, that's an illness and I'm going to like, not that I, I can't, especially in like a visiting role, I can't really always stop people from doing things that are harmful to them. But I can at least say like, that's harmful to you. And if to the extent that I know about it, I'm going to try to prevent it and like try to involve like all of all of the harm prevention that goes into mental health kind of goes out the window. If you say that, well, somebody can just decide and then and then it becomes this big conversation of like, well, when are you decisional enough? Like, when do you have enough rational capacity to say, I want to end my life where you're not too emotionally involved. You're not suffering too much to then be clouded and not able to actually make a decision, Mm -hmm. but you're still suffering enough that it's a rational decision. Want to end your life to stop the suffering. I mean, it's, that's a subjective determination too. There's nothing medical about figuring that out. So, well, and then the other part of it is just that when euthanasia made, whatever you want to call it is admitted into the list of treatments, it then becomes almost a non-moral question. It becomes a treatment for any number of maladies, and it's just sort of like, you know, is the patient right as to whether or not this treatment applies to their current case? And the categories, as we've seen in Canada, only become more and more subjective over time, purely, purely subjective. Treatment, I mean, it is 100% successful in stopping whatever condition is afflicting the person, whether it's a terminal cancer, whether it's a mental condition whether they have chronic pain, it will guaranteed stop that in just like a very cynical, sarcastic way. But like, I mean, if you're comparing treatments and your only goal is to prevent that illness, I don't know if it's just like so detached from reality to be to, to get to that point. But and I mean, I, it is. And I think another gnarly ethical conundrum that's going to come up that we can recognize as ethical conundrum, but once this is viewed as a legitimate treatment, Sam, as you said, with not not only a legitimate treatment, but a 100% effective treatment, um, even the question of consent becomes rather vexed. What about the person who, for example, is deep within dementia slash Alzheimer's? Um, if made is now legitimately a, a good and you know, moral uh, thing to perform if they consented. Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, typically like family members are kind of given that like the ball gets punted. And it, as with many things with made, at first the line seems very, very clear. Well, of course we would only administer this if the person is consenting. Well, we'll only administer this if the person is completely out of their minds and we, we let a loving family member do it. But as we've seen over and over again, that line gets pushed and pushed and pushed. Once you accept this as a... Uh, as a as decent treatment, as a good and moral treatment, that is not only a treatment, but 100% effective, as Sam said, it, it gets more and more vexed. Yeah, that's very true. Because I, I mean, I can think of real people with real family members right now who would do this to their loved one with dementia if it were available, based on what they voiced to me, that so-and-so, he or she would not want to live this way. Um, it's been, it's very hard on the family to watch them decline, uh, especially for dementia or Alzheimer's, which can be like a multi-year, sometimes even spanning decades process of decline, which is just really hard to see. Um, Not everyone, not every family reacts to it that way to say like, well, we should just, I wish that we could just end this quickly. Um, But some do. And, And the way that that gets expressed now is not through assisted suicide, because it wouldn't be suicide. This person, the person with dementia is so far gone. They have they would have no ability to really intentionally commit suicide. Sometimes they do things that's, that so are, that'd be murder then. Exactly. That's, it would be homicide. And, and so the, I'm just drawing that distinction for, but I mean, sometimes the difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia feels very, very blurred to me, but technically there is one. Anyway, um, the way that that comes up in conversations now is about 
um, continuing to treat or even provide basic supportive care for people with dementia or Alzheimer's. So, for example, feeding them um, can be a controversial topic, especially if they're not able to feed themselves, but they're still accepting food. It's interesting because I, we've, I've had this conversation about, like I said, real people, real family members with my team, and the default answer is, well, that's not legal. We have to feed them because that's what the law says. Because the law kind of follows the traditional distinction about um, ordinary versus extraordinary means, where where it's not like I'm obligated to advocate and try to make happen somebody get a feeding tube if they can't take food orally anymore. That's like an extraordinary, because that's a whole surgery. It comes with a whole lot of risks and benefits. So that's not something that we would necessarily do for everybody. But an ordinary means of feeding someone is just offering them a spoonful of food, you know, and seeing if they accept it or not. Um, that Obviously, that is considerably less risky and has considerably more obvious benefits. And in the Christian tradition, that's that's just considered ordinary care. That's not considered a treatment to offer somebody food, even if it's like nutrition fortified food or something like that, or like a drink that's like a protein drink. That wouldn't be considered an extraordinary treatment by any means. But there are family members of people with Alzheimer's who do consider it extraordinary because they just think that that, and, and it's not that the act of eating is suffering because it never is. I mean, it's if anything, it's might be kind of neutral. Sometimes you can't really tell how people seem to enjoy it, and and then most of the time, people. I mean, then they're not hungry anymore. They accept it, like they seem to like it. So it's not like the act itself is somehow harming them. What the family member thinks is that the entire life, like the entire existence, has just such a low quality um, that it's just not worth sustaining. And so then, what if we just stopped feeding them? There's an article that, that we've referenced a couple times on the podcast talking about we are repaganizing. This might be a good example of that. It's like taking our elders and sending them into the woods to die of exposure. My father-in-law has said something to the vague effect of if he gets dementia, something about the woods and a shotgun, and or he's trying to time his smoking so that it sort of all declines at the same time. Um, it just, you know, all kind of happens fast. But all that being said, the core question here for this, like the emotional appeal of this argument is about quality of life, but it's also about suffering and fear of suffering. And that's sort of the big thing that everyone comes to. We do think that euthanasia is all right, more or less, when we put a dog down, you know, if it's uh, not gonna, if it's if it can't be recovered, or even if we can't afford uh, to, to pay for what would allow it some, some semblance of life going forward. So I guess the question, the hard question that we do have to answer if we take the stance that I think we all do is, you know, how does suffering factor into our equation? How do we respond to that argument? Yeah, that is the question. And honestly, I don't know if it has an answer that doesn't border on theological, which is why it's such a difficult one to answer in a medical context where you have people that have a wide variety of beliefs about God and about the afterlife and about any kind of redemption or redemptive value of anything you go through on earth or afterward. I think I mean, it's interesting because that you said the euthanasia and put the dog down because I, I recently had a patient whose daughter is a Christian um, and took very good care of her. It was and I, I would like to stress the families that can that say these things are very devoted. They're so involved that it takes on this aspect of a burden for them. Even though, from what I can tell, the patient themselves is usually not as burdened as the family member is. Like the patient seems to have more of a calm existence than the family member does. The family member is the one that's just like kind of I don't know. Their eyes are deer in the headlights. They're just kind of like, how do I make sense? of this? How, how do I make it stop? 
you know, that's kind of there. Um, so it's almost when you're asking about suffering, it is the patient's suffering, but it might also in large part be the family member's suffering um, in having to witness this that that we that we're having to address. Because when I when I think about a patient suffering, like an elderly patient, we have fairly good both pharmacological and non-pharmacological palliative care, hospice care, whatever uh, umbrella you're under. I mean, we can typically address that if only because we have enough sedating medications that we can usually get somebody to ramp down if they're really anxious or if they're in a lot of pain. Um, I, I Probably the extreme example of that would be something called palliative sedation, uh, which is not supposed to be sedation into death. It's sort of like an unmonitored sedation scenario, but it's supposed to be giving somebody fairly high doses of medication until they finally calm down, whether it's anxiety or pain. Usually I would say it's probably a mixture of both. Um, and I've, I've never done that. I mean, I've done conscious sedation in a, um, like a procedural setting, but I've never palliatively sedated someone, but I can definitely think of examples or, and I've heard of examples where something like that was done, but it had in mind the, the reduction of suffering in that moment. Um, I think Revan's question about what about the fear of suffering? Like, what about if it happens again? What about if we have to keep responding to it? I think there's kind of, in my mind, there's kind of like three ways that you can respond to suffering for a patient. There's like the preventative way, which is what made things just, if you just have them die, then they'll never have to suffer again, preventing it entirely. There's like an anticipatory way, which is for example, let's say somebody has like a really terrible wound that whenever you have to do the care for it, it really hurts. So anticipatory would be, I'm going to give them medication ahead of time, even though they're not saying they're hurting right now, I'll give them medication ahead of time before I have to touch it. So then hopefully it won't hurt. And then there's like responsive, which is they're already in pain. And so then you'll give them medication. And it, I mean, I mean, saying medication because that's kind of our go-to in medicine, but um, it could also be non-pharmacological stuff. Sometimes just holding somebody's hand or playing music or an ice pack or something. I mean, there's <laughs> there's definitely a lot of things. So so when I think of the patient's suffering, I think the probably we're more focused on the global preventative part. It's not about, oh my gosh, what are we going to do in a specific situation where someone has either emotional or physical suffering? We're more thinking in this existential aspect of like the fact that you might incur suffering at some point for the rest of your life. And then on the family member's side, the fact that they might have to witness that. How do you cope with that? How do you cope with the idea that you might have to go through this, whatever it is that you're afraid of, that you've already experienced, that you've seen someone else experience? How do you cope with that? Which is a good question. And um, I don't think death is the answer. <laughs> no, but how, yeah, like how would we cope with that? I mean, from a secular perspective, because this has been something that every, I mean, every person has to deal with this, you know, at some level. Mm -hmm. And how do you, I guess, I mean, I have a Christian answer, right, is the sanctification of suffering. But like, how would you traditionally deal with this, Allison, in like a secular context where there's no understanding of like, suffering even being a good thing or being a thing that could be sanctified by God? Yeah, you probably wouldn't be able to say that to most patients. <laughs> Oh, sure. Setting. Um, they, in fact, that might be seen as a little bit flippant. Um, I mean, like the the real the real boots on the ground answer is that I would ask them, like, what have your coping strategies been? Try to elicit from them a sense of their spirituality and so forth. Because the the I think the caring thing to do when you're 
like concretely alongside someone is not to come in and preach at them about like, here's a theodicy, you know, why does a good God allow evil in the world? Well, I have this really pat answer for you that like some theologian put together in a paper. <laughs> like that's not going to mean very much probably to most people. Oh. So, so it's, so I, I think the, the like concrete answer is that you figure out where they are, like how, how have the coping, how have they made it this far in life? Because um, a lot of these people might be middle-aged or elderly, so they've probably felt or thought something about it, and then you just kind of go from there. What are the, some of the strategies that you see in that? Like, like I, I'm, I'm just genuinely curious as, mm-hmm. as I mean, maybe it's really naive, um, but also I consider it fortunate that I, I mean, I've had to deal with suffering, but it's, I, I, I have had that lens to fall back on through all mm-hmm. of it. And so mm-hmm. I guess I'm just I'm just genuinely curious because it seems to me like I don't know I, I'm I'm curious if that could provide the link for how we got to this point with made making sense oh, to that mindset that I that I definitely believe yeah the fact that we don't have like a I mean this is like bioethics 101 that there isn't bioethics 101 <laughs> like we don't have a basic foundation that everybody agrees with uh, that we can refer to on what's good and evil or whether God exists or what God the role of religious belief should be uh in offering counseling and such so yeah i think if you're asking like how would i are you asking about specifically like conversations that i've had with patients yeah i'm just curious i mean yeah what are what are some of your it depends on the patient and actually to be honest i think most of these conversations are with family members than with patients per se Mm -hmm. because like i said that i work a lot with people with alzheimer's and dementia so whatever their coping skills are I don't know. It's 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 not really like a thought process that you talk through it. They they more respond to just having somebody be there with them. And sometimes what they need is for you them to just ramble and you have to listen for not what they're saying because there isn't like a rational coherent thought there, but you just listen for like what they mean if that makes sense, like the emotion behind it. And then sometimes you can just say reassuring things that just kind of and, and it might take a lot of time because that's that's probably the number one problem with these types of conversations. Is it can take time and you don't have time as a healthcare professional. You, you end up just kind of doing a lot of emotional support for somebody that isn't rationally telling you about suffering, but appears like they're suffering. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's probably how most of those conversations have gone with what the elderly who are cognitively impaired. For somebody that isn't cognitively impaired or for a family member, um, sometimes letting them get it off their chest is kind of all they needed. Like if, and maybe all they needed from me, because I try to have a good sense of boundaries about do they want me to share like what I think their coping strategy should be? Because a lot of people don't. <laughs> they just want to tell you how it is that they feel, what they're afraid of. They want to be validated. They want to tell their horror story of like this hospitalization that happened. And they want somebody. And I have some authority, too, because of my license and my job. So if I'm saying like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a lot. Like, or I can't believe they told you that. That's really frustrating. Or no. No wonder you're feeling scared. Did they ever talk to you about this? Like that, that kind of validation can go a long way. And because I, I do think some of the fear of suffering, not, I guess not as much with quality of life, but just in medical settings in general, it comes from this like bad experiences with previous things. So if you listen to somebody and you kind of present yourself as somebody that's not going to give them another bad experience of, you know, nurse ratchet or something, sure. that that can help quiet things. Now, when it comes to quality of life, sometimes you just have to acknowledge that it sucks. Like it 
I mean, I know that you remember your mom or your dad as someone who was a lot more strong and vital and that really took care of you. And now to see them in this like emaciated, wasted state where they're like not coherent and barely able to eat and they're peeing themselves and pooping themselves and they require so much help and you're it's all falling on you to have to help take care of them. Like just acknowledging like, yeah, that's really hard to see. I don't always think it's my place to then launch into like, but life is still living worth living anyway. <laughs> um, but I will say, and, and I, I'm pretty free about saying this to people if they start in the like, why can't I just put my mom down like I put the dog down type, which is a real thing that people have said to me. Um, <laughs> then if, if they start going that direction, I just remind them of like the limits of human knowledge. Like I say, I'm not God. Like I wouldn't try to decide that now is when somebody has to die. And I don't try to decide how much is too much for them or what. And 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 I say like, I especially because where this question really comes is the active dying process, which can be hard. It can last for some time, like several days sometimes. And it's hard for other people to watch. And sometimes it seems hard for the patient to go through too. And so that's that's probably the number one thing. Probably this is what started made in the first place is people that are, they see that and they're like, why? Why would we have to allow that? Why can't we just put them down like we put the dog down? That's It sounds a little flippant, but I mean, that's where people come from. And so I try to remind people that medicine, as much as it knows, is not the ultimate source of truth and knowledge, that there's a lot of things that we don't, we can't explain that from like a psychosocial perspective, from a spiritual perspective, I kind of touch on the fact that hospice care uh, at, at, at the end of life at its best brings in not just a nurse and a doctor the way that like some things do, like your heart doctor or something probably doesn't have a chaplain. They might have a social worker. They probably don't have like a music therapist. You know, they probably don't have pet therapy, all these other things that hospice can do because we're we're focused on a holistic person and medic medicine can address part of that person. Um, and sometimes, sometimes that's the only thing that really needs to be addressed and they can kind of go on their merry way and live the whole rest of their life. Okay. But then at the end of life, you start asking if, if you try to collapse somebody down to just their medical risk benefit, their medical problem list, uh, then you're going to have an incomplete view of them as a person. And you're going to have an incomplete yeah. view of the point of living to the end of your natural life. And I, I've told this to people before, even if I didn't think they agreed that like the end of life might be between them and God. Like I can't, I don't have access to it. I can't see what's in their brain, but that's, I, I'm not going to try to interfere with that because it's not my place. And people accept that. I mean, they may not agree, but they're kind of like, okay, <laughs> okay, now I'll be quiet. I was just going to say on that example, I remember a very influential um, sort of person that I followed while I was still vaguely on Twitter or at least stalking Twitter. And maybe I mentioned this last time, but this this elderly Catholic man who was in the process of like actively dying. It's like, you know, day, like every few days he would post and say like, you know, day 134 of dying and like say, I, I pray this pain here's how the pain is. And he had this community that followed him. And he was just this this witness in his process of knowingly passing away. Actually, and eventually he did, obviously, that was just like a very poignant example. When I think about this, like that is it at its best. And I think people are probably the people who are, let's say, most compassionate and most, you know, they're, they're trying to come from a good place in terms of preventing the suffering of people who are going through, you know, the hardest things that humans can go through. I think there is like that's where the hardest conversations will always be. However, there are also much easier conversations such as what's happening in Canada, which is a whole 
football field far or whatever sports they play up there. It's it's a whole curling court distant from um, actual hard questions because they're just basically okay. So I I actually did look this up. So did you all read The Giver that book? Yeah, in middle school. Oh yeah, classic. Uh, probably the first dystopia most of us read. Indeed. Indeed it is. And Canada also reads it in their middle schools, but they were just like, yeah, let's let's make that. Let's release people to elsewhere, which just involves, you know, getting a lethal injection that they, you know, give to every twin because they can't overpopulate or when you're old, you just get the lethal. It's very dark. But Canada was just like, yeah, no, no, this this was a good idea. Something, something, the slippery slope is not a fallacy. It's a description of reality just in the future. But speaking of the future, because I'm sure we could talk for a very long time about this. Um, death isn't the only realm in which bioethics is contested, uh, in which bioethics is only getting better. Um, I don't know, Allison, I think you, you missed the message. You were supposed to give a positive uh, spin on, on what was happening. I was laughing when you were saying, like, everything is rosy, it's all getting better, and I was like, ha, I wish. <laughs> but I'm going to turn it over to Sam, who I'm told has, has, has only good news uh, about uh, surrogacy. Only good news over here. Yeah, yeah. Brevin assigned me the topic of surrogacy, which I know next to nothing about. Um, but I think it's just for an, an excuse, um, or his excuse to make me talk about the Pope. Um, but it, it basically, the news is that Pope Francis on January 8th recently uh, made a definitive call for the end of surrogacy worldwide. Um, and this issue seems rather clear cut um, in most in most Christian circles. Uh, basically, the Pope's arguments are that surrogacy diminishes the dignity of both mother and child by forcing a woman to carry a child who is not hers, and by treating a child as a commodity, and treating the entire arrangement as a means for another couple's happiness in raising a child. And then the Catholic argument also adds in the piece that it removes uh, childbearing from the sacred bond of husband and wife, something that, again, most or all other Christian denominations hold to one degree or another. This issue is fairly clear cut. Um, I was doing research before the episode, and there's no denomination that allows for um, all types of surrogacy. You'll see some uh, groups, notably the Church of England, unfortunately, who will allow for surrogacy in, in cases where it is both the egg and sperm are the... Um, the married couples, and, and it's not using a donor. That's really the most extreme that you see. The more complicated and interesting question in my mind is the issue of embryo adoption, which is related to this. Um, many instances of surrogacy involve IVF, and even separate from surrogacy, IVF is an extremely prevalent means of conception. I didn't get any statistics on exactly how prevalent it is, but it's why it's widespread uh, since since it was um, invented in the 70s. The complicating factor is that IVF involves the creation of up to 12 embryos. Uh, usually, only one to maybe three are actually implanted, uh, meaning that you're left with 10 or so embryos that are unused. Uh, these are usually frozen, um, and the ownership is retained by the couple who produced them. They can be donated for science which ultimately leads to their death, or they can be discarded. Um, and right now in the United States, there are about 1.5 million embryos frozen. So there's a movement that we've seen um, over the last couple decades, small but growing movement for embryo adoption, where a couple, whether they are um, fertile or infertile, um, adopts one of these frozen embryos, um, has it implanted and brought to term. So I guess I'm very, it's, it's an interesting topic. I think we were talking beforehand and most of us, maybe if all of us, 
know somebody um, who has chosen to go this route. On its face, it feels, even though the process is, is quite similar to surrogacy, raising another person's child, even um, nurturing another person's child in that way, going through a pregnancy of another person's child, it seems somewhat different in that the embryo is already created. So I'm curious, I guess, is, is there a fair equivocation between surrogacy and embryo adoption, or is there something substantively different here? I'd like to add that even as the Pope has been making these statements about surrogacy, he's not said anything about embryo adoption. And in my research, there's really no definitive stance from any major denomination on whether this is a morally good thing to do or a morally bad thing to do. Um, though there are many Christian organizations who will facilitate the adoption of an embryo. So. Um, one one brief footnote I would like to add, you did mention that most Christians find surrogacy kind of definitively no, um, at least from what I've yes. gathered. Catholic, absolutely. I'm guessing from your statements, Anglicans probably against, although Anglicanism is kind of a whole spectrum of well, sense. So surrogacy, surrogacy, maybe. Uh, the, the line I was seeing in most cases was that like IVF slash surrog surrogacy is not allowed in most cases, though like Church of England might allow it. IVF is only allowed if there are measures taken to avoid the creation of excess embryos. So you can pay to have it and, and, and have it only, um, you know, only one embryo or one egg fertilized. But the, the, the problem is that the success rate is so is relatively low. So you'd be paying all this money. The incentive is to shotgun. Yeah, exactly. So if you're able to get 12 or so and implant the healthiest two, and out of those one is all is you gives you something like a 65% chance. Which so. even that statement of you make 12 and then implant the two healthiest has this vaguely eugenic adjacent language oh, totally. about it, which is a very creepy thing in and of itself. And that is pretty inescapable when doing embryo adoption. I, I think yes. I would agree philosophically embryo adoption versus IVF is a different thing. Basically, you are saving a child thrown out to sea versus you are creating 12 children, throwing them out to sea, then picking one or two to save again. Um, mm -hmm. That said, it's certainly not without its own very gnarly ethical issues. Both, um, I, I know two individuals who have um, gone through this process and given birth after, I think, multiple failures um, going for embryo adoption that is not IVF. Mm. And basically, they all said, yeah, this is a rotten system. We hope that it's no longer around, but we're trying to do the best we can with what we have. Um, one of the couples did so uh, due to infertility. They didn't want to go through IVF, um, so they decided kind of, we're going to save the the, the child that we can. The other one, basically, they just felt it was the right thing to do. They had already had some kids and, but still were very aware of the ethical, uh, at, at best gray of this, uh, of this area. I, so I think both, both Christian couples. Yes. Both about Christian. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, from my understanding from this article on a couple associated readings, it is this gray area because the official church stance would just be don't do IVF at all. Stop knock it off, it's bad, but it doesn't quite work with the downstream effects of what happens when you're in a situation that we're currently in. So, and it hasn't said, as Sam said, anything definitively on this. And you have these competing tensions in between the respecting the embryo as a life. Uh, there was a, a this document that was put out the, from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, instruction on respect for human life in its origin and the dignity of procreation, replies to certain questions of the day, uh, just not all of them, but some of them. It talks about, you know, uh, that the embryo must be treated as a person. It has to be defended in its integrity, tended care for to the extent possible. 
possible in the same way that any other human being as far as medical assistance is concerned. But, you know, in a context where someone is pregnant, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's easy enough. But in a context where some sort of violation of, you know, that the Catholic ethic has already happened and you have it in a lab or in a freezer somewhere, it's unclear what that means. And I think the church would consider such an embryo a life, a person, a child even. And to 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 quote just from the um from the document. Uh, it says, quote, the child is not an object to which one has a right, nor can he be considered an object of ownership. Rather, a, ch a child is a gift and the most gratuitous gift of marriage and is a living testimony to the mutual giving of his parents. For this reason, the child has the right to be the fruit of the specific act of conjugal love of, of his parents. He also has the right to be respected as a person from the moment of his conception, end quote. And that's exactly the, the tension is the church is very big on children arising from the love and mutual self-giving of their parents. So anything that is different from that, the church is generally against. But the problem is you've already skipped the step of uh, that the child has already been deprived of his parents. And the only possible way to remedy that, as far as we know, is to basically do, you know, what would normally be considered a bad thing again, uh, you know, and the question of can you licitly try to mend some of the harm via a practice that, I mean, the most immoral part of it from the Catholic perspective is obviously the creation of the embryos. It's less specific, aside from separating the conception of children from the conjugal act. Uh, um, the child's already conceived. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so like, it's, yeah. It, it's, it, yeah, that's, that's the core tension. Yeah, Brevin, I, so I looked into like just a skim of Catholic uh, journal articles on embryo adoption, which are all over the map. Like this is not a settled issue uh, in among theologians. And it seems like, like what you're saying, it seems like the tension is, do you consider a woman gestating a child to be part of procreation? Or is that part of adoption? Because we all know what adoption of an infant is, right? Where you are taking care of, and so, and obviously the church has nothing against that. The the like sticking point is a married woman carrying a child that's not their couples, or or a single woman carrying a child that is not part of any kind of marriage covenant at all, um, even if it was for the purpose of having somebody else raise them as sort of an act of mercy or perceived as an act of mercy, which is still dangerously close to what Pope Francis talks about rent a uterus. But anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a super clear answer to that question. I mean, my, my instinct would be that yes, gestation is part of procreation in a way that adopting a child and raising them is not. But I think I think that's kind of the like. Can this really be considered adoption? Because then it seems like it would be a moral option. But if it's not, if it's still part of a marriage act um, and the fruit of a marriage act, like you were saying, then then no. It's, from a Catholic perspective, I don't think it would be allowed. And that's where the division is. The people that are like, well, this is obviously adoption. They think that it's the most pro-life thing ever to do, and so they don't understand the people that are doing these more like technical analyses of what is a conjugal act and yada yada yada. Because it seems like kind of this rejection of compassion you know these are just little babies that need to be born so anyway one of the things i would like to for us to clarify i think i know where we don't land on this but still i think it's a point worth bringing up um oftentimes i'll hear arguments against for example abortion by saying it does great harm to the mother's body or it's a very risky procedure what have you but those i find very unconvincing simply because that's just an argument for improving the technology um improving the practice make it so that it's 
better, safer, etc. Um, the vexedness of the language of making it safer for the act of killing someone is obviously uh, ironic, but I digress. With this, though, given that, say, say a perfectly healthy married couple that is simply infertile, but the woman is able to carry an embryo, um, we'll say it's, the infertility is purely on the guy, which is actually um, the case in uh, one of my friends um, who did the embryo adoption. Say IDF was possible such that um, there was one, like a new technology was developed and we'll even say just to remove as many ethical barriers as possible, it was developed without any sort of experimentation such that uh, embryos had to die for it. So it was able to, it was just, we made wave a magic wand and we say this technology now exists such that we can take the man's sperm and the, wo the, and the woman's egg, we can make an embryo, we can implant it, and we have 100% um, success. I think I would still get very squeamish around it just because it is frustrating the natural process. Um, there just seems something very, I don't know, I guess unnatural about it, but I think it would remove some of the ethically gray areas of it. it, it at the very least, I think it's um, perhaps the most steel man argument for IVF. What would we all say to that? I think it's a, it's a pretty easy no, because a large part of the Catholic argument is just that the control over the origins of life do not belong in science's hands in that way in a purely technological sense. It's procreation is, and children are a gift, not something to be owned, not something to be created. It's not a project or the result of someone willing something into be. It's a gift. So in that sense, I, th I think it's a pretty, pretty straightforward no from the Catholic side. Yeah, I, well, I agree from a Catholic perspective. But Stephen, my, I was thinking when you were saying like, let's try to remove the ethical gray area. Has, is your like magic technology wand also removing the like effective embryo problem that these, that, because this is true of the embryo adoption situation too unfortunately is that kind of end up like you, you had mentioned the eugenicists let's get the healthiest ones which to be fair when we say healthy for embryos that could mean just like compatible with life like something that isn't just you know so it's so it's not just about like well maybe they won't have down syndrome it could just mean something that's actually going to develop because obviously this is done in a test tube it has an even lower success rate than natural fertilization which itself is actually fairly low <laughs> Or at least we think it is. We can't. Re we don't really measure how many embryos may never be implanted uh, in utero. But I think they have a. I don't actually know how they estimate that. But anyway. Um, from what I understand, talking to a another one of the couples that that did this, um, they, they went a little bit more into the de details. Apparently, the embryos do have some sort of scaling. So like, I think it's like A, B, C, D, or something like that. And a with A being the highest chance of success. And so obviously, a couple is incentivized. Like, well, we'll go with the A highest chance of success we don't want to go with this over and over and over again so yes with my magic technology that i've done waiting my magic wand um we'll even say like the egg and the sperm are chosen completely at random and it's still 100 chance so that way there's no eugenics x i want also my child to have blonde hair and blue eyes and have a, a million iq and be the bestest basketball player etc etc like nope purely random as much replicating the natural act as possible, except for the fact that the uh, embryo is made outside of the conjugal act, which I, for the record, still have, I think I have issues, but similar to my issues with something like contraceptive or something like that, where it's a an ontologically different, different category than abortion. 
It is, you are frustrating nature, you're not murdering. Aren't you though? What if you make the embryo and it doesn't implant like lots of embryos? What have you done? I mean, at, at that point, that's why I'm saying magic wand. Nope, 100% effective rate. It will go to, it, it, well, because I, I think, I mean, this is also very much a kind of mathematician thing. Like you prove the extreme case and then you try to work backwards from there. You try to provide uh, some sort of axiom like, are we okay with this? Okay, if we're okay with this, then from where are we going to build such that it's not okay? In? Um, so I like I would ask a similar issue with um, euthanasia. Are you okay with somebody in extreme suffering putting them down? No. Okay. Well, if it's not okay, even at the most extreme example, then surely it's not okay, even at this less extreme example. I'm I'm trying to do a, kind of construct a similar thing with IVF, except I'm actually though I lean towards I would not be okay with it. I would still I would find it more difficult to to judge if we had the sort of 100% uh, effective thing. Um, but the fact of the matter is we don't, and therefore I'm not okay with it because, I mean, humans are dying from that. Oh, Canada. Euthanasia is 100% effective too, Stephen. We don't have to wave a magic wand for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you have been quiet, but what do you, do you have any... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm really, I pitch these questions to, um, to you all, because I think this, this article that kind of started this whole conversation, I really haven't summarized, but it's basically it's looking at Catholics who have done this, and, and they've, they are looking at the situation, which we've seen both in encyclicals from JP2 and also Pope Benedict, saying that this is a crisis. And the, the, the number of frozen embryos are like, it's a tragedy, it's a crisis, it must be halted. The article is looking at multiple Catholic couples um, who decided to pursue embryo adoption and after talking with priests, bishops, theologians, studying church documents, conclude it's completely acceptable. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, and Brevin, I see that you're saying that it's, it's outside the, the conjugal act, but I guess like, we're, yes, that, that's where it came from, but that doesn't necessarily justify the death of that child. And I guess there is like an, it seems like the, 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 the uniquely Christian element to bring to bear on the situation is the idea of dignity to those and, and ultimately sa saving what you can. I don't know. I mean, and that, that's, that's just what I'm wrestling with here is it's, is it seems to feel very different than such as something like surrogacy, which is almost universally decried by Christians high and, I mean, low. I don't know. I mean, I guess there, 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 there seems to be something different here. I Well, for one, I completely agree. I do think the moral question here is like grayer and different than surrogacy, commercialized surrogacy. But I do have a question for you about what you're saying that this seems like, I don't know, a different type of procreation or something in terms of theology of the body and in terms of like the marital self-gift of a husband to a wife, because that's another tension I noticed in these articles about embryo adoption and in what you just said. If you focus on the child and the act of Christian love and mercy toward the child, it seems really logical to be like, yeah, of course, embryo adoption. But what about the purpose of a woman's womb and a woman's body? Is it appropriate to take that outside of a marital context with a different man's sperm. It has to be a different man's sperm because it's an embryo. I mean, I guess and likely unless a different, maybe it was a, a husband different. that like previously did, <laughs> which but is not what not. I mean, we're, we're dealing with. We're dealing with one where it's not her, is it's no connection to her or her husband. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's the debate, right? I mean, looking at the article, right, you've got some theologians here who are saying that 
Um, well, I mean, the two arguments they bring forth, there's it's Pakulski, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's a priest saying that I would advise against it because it's just a morally, basically, I'm, I'm simplifying what he's saying here, but it's a morally just gross space. It's like, it's, there's so m- many sins that led that point and to engage in that in any way is to be tarnished by it. It's a morally disordered area. Um, on the other hand, you see Janet Smith, the ethics, Catholic ethicist, who's saying, no, this is a very charitable thing to do. That's the definition of charity is to is is to give up, I guess, your own opportunity to have your own child in there and instead rescue one of these. And I don't know, it's just it's just such a gray area. Sam, how would you feel if I did it as an unmarried woman? What would that like? Would that be an act of charity? Or would that or probably even if unmarried, I did it on someone else's no. behalf? Yeah. No, so it would have to be a Probably not. But why? But There's why? It's an adoption. Why would it have to be married? Why do I have to? Because I don't, I could, I could, I know there's, there's prudential concerns about raising, obviously. But what if I did it as an actee for a different couple that was infertile? I don't have any fertility concerns. I'm not doing it to solve my own infertility. And so then I just offer, for, I don't know, a couple of friend of mine that they're experiencing infertility. I'll adopt an embryo and gestate it. And then you guys can have a child. It's, yeah, it sounds yeah, it's, something it's, is wrong with that. And I need, you have to figure out why. Yeah. I think. I think it's the gestational aspect. I think that I like what my womb it sounds really strange to put it that way, but like my ability to bear a child belongs in my marital cover. Even even though I obviously have great concern for these embryos, that's why I think the Catholic position of like there's no ju- what did Reverend what does the document say like there's no licit way or no just way to resolve this something like that because I don't I mean I've well, that was stated before <laughs> the before it was possible to do embryo adoption like before this was really a thing that people were doing yeah. Well, one of them was written before. One of them was written in what? 2000. It was shortly before. 2009. I need. Well, in 2009, which I didn't read. But I'm not. I mean, yeah, I I would need to read it. Anyway. I don't. I think I would chalk this up um, to the sort of act. Actually, there's a so there's a great uh, there's a famous case, I think, in the 1800s, where basically there was a shipwreck in the middle of the ocean. Three survivors got into a lifeboat and after lasting on the ocean for i think a week or two ran out of food were look running on food water and basically drew lots and the loser was murdered and um the two survivors were they eventually made it back they were found and they were arrested for murder found guilty for murder and the judge commuted their sentence down to like six months public service or something like that um because basically the the thrust of it being we as society acknowledge that what you did was morally abhorrent you murdered someone and ate them you also did it in very very extreme unusual circumstances that we also want to acknowledge and i think the more the more i listen to this conversation the more i think that that's that that case obviously very extreme I think it's actually somewhat relevant here in that there are a million and a half embryos that the church acknowledges as human beings made in the image of God. And there is no way of... And, and the church is the only one who's saying that. Yes. And the church is also caught in this double bind of, and we find it extremely morally, or maybe not extremely, but we find it morally abhorrent to artificially implant these in women's bodies and have them gestate them and give birth and whatnot. Like there's just something very, as Allison said, there's something very eerie about this whole thing. And so I don't know, I, I, I've actually, I think I'm finding myself more and more sympathetic with the church is unable to condone this, but I also would argue that the church is probably unable to at least strongly condemn a loving, uh, let's say, let's just keep specific in the Catholic um, tradition for now. I think the Catholic church should be very unable to strongly condemn a loving 
Catholic couple from adopting an embryo. They shouldn't be able to condone, maybe even say like, yeah, I need to confess this. But then the priest be like, okay, yeah, only God can judge you on this one because you were in an impossible decision. You did a, you did both a morally good and a morally bad thing in the same exact action. There's a reason that the church hasn't been definitive on this, right? Yeah. I think what what we're saying about it being a gray zone is really just saying that it's a whole area that's that's fraught with... Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an area that you cannot in, engage in without staining yourself, essentially. Uh, and so, as a general rule, you should not engage at all. And really... The focus should never be distracted from, you know, how do we end the practice in toto, right? Like it's it's not, this is anything in this adoption area is a band-aid on the actual solution because there's no reason to think that this will slow down or that this can solve the problem whatsoever, right? I would also be quick to point out that my steel manning of it, of say we're able to develop this technology such that blah, 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 that is in no way, shape or form the actual situation. Also, you have the complication of any sort of participation in, say, embryo adoption is probably participation in this overall system, which is encouraging and given, giving economic yes. incentives to keep pushing IVF at all. So this is far but, from a straightforward situation that I was trying to paint out as a steel man. Well, sure. But I mean, Brevin, if it's so straightforward, why hasn't the Catholic Church come out and said, I mean, if it's if it's clearly just a violation of like theology of body 101, why not just call that out? when they've had many opportunities to do so and have not. To be fair, there are theologians that say the church's teaching in Donum Vitae and Dignitas Personae is super clear-cut against embryo adoption, and the main argument against that is not that, oh, it's not clear, it's more those are those documents don't provide a whole analysis of why it says there's no just way to resolve this or no licit way to resolve this. It, the documents really just sort of say that after some of the same points that Brevin made earlier and then just kind of moves on to another topic. And so there yeah. isn't this sense of like, what about the rescue? What about the adoption? What about the love of the child? What about mercy? What about, you know, that doesn't ever get addressed. So that's why people will say the church hasn't spoken on it because they haven't spoken on that piece of it. But the whole like marital act part of it, I feel like is pretty clear. But the whole, what if this is actually a form of adoption? That has not been. But I mean, the Pope does have a committee that looks at these things, but I don't know if this is one of their topics or not. That was the article that I said. It's you also, from I mean, to be fair, it's a it's a very small practice. I mean, we're talking in like the 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 thousand um, in the U.S. I think what the Pope would say, like, not that I can read his mind, but just based on how strongly he's come down against surrogacy and IVF as commercialization in the past, I think that he would seriously question on a practical level, like a Stephen Steele Manning aside, which could maybe solve this concern, but like on a practical level, he would probably say, this is seems like something that couples would do after trying IVF or as sort of a complement to surrogacy. Like he would, like Brevin said, that this is an arena where you just end up staining yourself. I think it's interesting that Stephen's examples, like the, the couples that you know, it was just kind of their, something that they went to without IVF with the, the couple that had already had children. I don't know that that's what he's thinking of when he makes these kinds of statements. So so that's, it's like, why hasn't the Pope answered this very specific question? I don't know, maybe because that's not his job always. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that I think that would probably be the initial instinct. And then explication after that. I don't know. Maybe somebody will write an encyclical. I doubt it would be Pope Francis, but... Yeah. Well, it may not be the Pope's job to determine how many children there should be, but there are people who think it's their job to determine how many babies there should be, at least in the United States. And these people call themselves pro-natalists. So I think that's cultural appropriation from good old God-fearing Catholics and our massive broods of children. But that aside, these people 
uh, are the subject of of my little section here, and we'll just sort of sort of go through this fast because these people are not worth taking seriously. They're just mostly worth making fun of. Uh, and I think Steve and Sam and I have done most of that, but I just want Allison. Did you have a chance to read this article? I read it, and I also suffered through the million playback issues I had last night to listen to the podcast where you guys talked about it. <laughs> oh my gosh, everything. I will just give a very brief introduction, and then I just want to hear you talk about how bad they are because we've heard what what each other say about them uh so this is if you didn't listen to uh previous times when this person when, when these people have come up this is a uh, simone and malcolm collins they're two 30 something entrepreneurs philosophers and parents and uh they want everyone to have more kids and by everyone they mean liberals and by kids they mean genetically selected people who uh then also they don't have to you know quit their corporate ceo jobs um, they also want to name their children after characters in Warhammer. Their daughter is named Titan Invictus. Their sons are named Torsten and Octavian. These people are completely delusional. Here is the part that I wanted to bring up that we hadn't talked about. Uh, quote, a literature review by New York University and the University of Wisconsin found evidence that political ideology is 40% genetic. Hence, the Collinsosphere, that as fertility declines, it will not be some racial other who outbreeds everyone else, but each culture's equivalent of the neo-Nazis. And this is quoting them. We are literally heading towards global Nazism, but they all hate each other, says Malcolm. End quote. Allison, what do you think of these people? Um, I have two points of commonality with them. Uh, I share their fear that people aren't able to have as many children as they want to. And I also know someone named Torstein. In his defense, his family is actually from Norway, and all of his siblings have similarly Norwegian names. They do not sound like video game people. <laughs> Apart from that, well, there's a lot of things that I could say, but I think that you've highlighted a good, a, a good, um, and kind of interesting parallel to the school upbringing that we had, where if you just have a bunch of kids, they're just going to agree with you and be part of your political, cultural domination force, so that you can take over the world and make sure those other people don't, um, don't take over the world. I think like. Just from my experience with me and my friends, human beings will just kind of decide whatever they're going to decide. And they, I mean, there's probably trends toward they're going to stay in maybe the same general political vicinity or religious vicinity that their parents are in, but they're definitely not carbon copies. And so I don't, I think that these, this couple, like more than anything else, if they do end up having seven kids, I think they're in for a rude awakening for the fact that probably none of the seven will agree with them. <laughs> <laughs> anything that they consider substantial so i hope that they learn um to soften their their sense of parenting to actually love their children unconditionally and not just for the outcome that they were hoping for that's my biggest fear for their family honestly their kids are going to read this article realize how cringe their parents are and then rebel against them in every way shape they can if they can alternatively their kids are going to have some kind of like limitation or struggle like every human being does and then they're going to feel like failures because they were supposed to be super kids and they're not actually did you guys take any time to look at their website pronatalist.org i never did no any uh any yeah. fun things oh yes uh fun things it'll mostly come up later in our game uh but i will say that a large portion of pronatalism.org appears to be tax evasion but anyway uh that's that's neither here nor there any uh final takes on these people sam not really i mean i i think that has come up before but i'll just say after working in family court, people will come up with all the worst reasons to have kids. And it's really sad. And this is just one example of that. It's almost like children are gifts that should be accepted, <laughs> not something that you can create all yourself. Anyway, 
We don't have to go back to Ivy. It's almost <laughs> as if willing children into being for your own personal political project will cause bad outcomes and cause them to be named Titan Invictus. Uh, but speaking of names... Wait, that wait, come wait, 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 the... wait. I mean, weird names of children to reclaim a culture. Doesn't that sound a lot like I don't know, James Reese Mock? Well, I feel like we need to do an honorary reading of Mogg's kids' names because they're awesome. No, no, but see, the difference is he, these people are trying to claim it from a future that doesn't exist and never will when they're Queen of Mars. They also named their daughter Titan Invictus so she would be taken more seriously in the boardroom. I just I just want that to be stated for full effect. What if their daughter doesn't want to be in a boardroom? I have two sisters and none of us have any interest in being in a boardroom. And also, if well, I met a woman... like a problem, Allison. <laughs> But I know, also, I'm if I met a woman named Titan Invictus at the boardroom, I would not take her seriously. If I met a woman named anything else, I would. But Titan <laughs> Invictus. I wouldn't take a man named Titan Invictus all that seriously either. <laughs> I wouldn't take a fish named Titan Invictus seriously. <laughs> all right. Uh, sorry. So because he was invoked, we do have to read... Uh, British conservative MPs Jacob Rees-Mogg, a good Catholic, and his children and their names. Have you heard these names before, Allison? All right, turn your mic on. They're, they're pretty great. You can react. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in no in no particular order. Mary Ann Charlotte Emma Riesmog. Thomas Wentworth Somerset Dunstan Riesmog. Peter Theodore Alfigi Riesmog. Okay. Alfred Wolfric Layson Pius Riesmog. Ansem Charles Fitzwilliam Riesmog. Oh dear. And finally, the best of them all, Sixtus Dominic Boniface Christopher Riesmog. Did this guy just take a bunch of saint and pope names and throw them in a name generator? You are correct. Yes. <laughs> Wait, did I hear Anselm? Like A N S E L M? Okay, but I'm there, like, you know, I have considered like naming a kid Anselm if I, I ever I had have a met son. a child named Anselm. I I didn't think it was a great idea, but I definitely met some of the like Benedict, Anselm, Ambrose <laughs> corner of the world. Okay, but St. Anselm was awesome, un unironically, though. I, I love him. And I'm not even Catholic. Wasn't he a pre schism saint? Nah, he was post. Unfortunately. Oh. Well, that shows how much I know. Alas. Well, sometimes even the Orthodox can transcend to appreciate Catholic things. But speaking of humanity transcending, Stephen, tell me about our final bioethical topic of the day, transhumanism. Uh, yes, transhumanism. Uh, this was a term originally coined in the essay called Transhumanism by Sir Julian Huxley, the brother of Aldous Huxley. So he really knew what he was talking about when he came to dystopian hellscapes of transhumanist uh, ideology. But basically, so, so Julian Huxley was writing back in the early to mid 1900s. And he kind of wanted to lay down some philosophical grounding for what our next steps were, um, kind of as a human species. And he he made some very interesting points in that uh, for most of history, pretty much up until the recent like last two, well, the last like ten thousand years, which is a blink of an eye as far as evolutionary history is concerned, uh, evolution has been mindless. Um, it has been optimized based on survival, but to use Dawkins' uh, term. One of the few things that uh, he got right, evolution is blind. The watchmaker is blind. Um, and for the first time on our planet, maybe even in the entire universe, we have control over evolution to an extent. We can decide where we want it to go. Um, and Huxley isn't quite as triumphal as you might expect. Um, he basically says that, that that humanity was put into the position of kind of the, the ship's captain, not necessarily being asked if they wanted to be the ship's captain, um, not given a choice in it, but that's just 
that's where we are. We have to decide where we're going and that's that. Um, and so he has a kind of a, a few kind of must do's or kind of, a, I guess, to do's um, for humanity. The first, excuse me, uh, the first job is to explore human nature. Uh, basically, he puts the analogy of we have completed our exploration of um, kind of uh, planetary geography and uh, we need to do the same with the limits of human nature, which even that statement is uh, somewhat frightening, uh, pushing our human nature as far as it can go. Um, and he's rather vague on what this even looks like, other than giving examples of kind of great men of the past that like Alexander the Great or Mozart or Beethoven were examples of kind of pushing the limits of human nature, um, which I mean is a fair point. And he does give a rather uh, kind of grandiose scheme for what this might look like. I mean, imagine if everyone was able to enjoy poetry as much as Shakespeare or enjoy music as much as Mozart. Um, that is quite the uh, the compelling vision. He states that with this in mind, we need to focus on creating a favorable social environment for this sort of hum new humanity to thrive. The overall thrust of his essay ends in kind of his prescribing the things that we need to focus on. Um, and that is uh, beauty, the quality of people, not mere quantity, especially back in the day, they were very concerned about overpopulation. And so he emphasized quality, not quantity of people. Um, true understanding and enjoyment that are ends in and of themselves. The ultimate satisfaction that comes from a depth and wholeness of the inner life. And that's those are the kind of the four main principles that we need to be focusing on kind of as humanity goes into the breaking world. I would quote them all in full, but Brevin, before the podcast, strictly enjoined me to not be doing block quotes. Um, it, he, he concludes with the statements, I believe in transhumanism being said by everyone that it will be the indicator for humanity that is on the precipice of a new existence. I, I learned this term recent, recently. This is a, known as a reflexive moment. Um, a reflexive moment is something that is true if and only if everyone believes it's true. The, the classic example of this is a revolutionary moment is true if and only if all of your listeners believe it's true. So I suppose with all this said, it's a, it's a rather short article. It's a very interesting one in that it's written in the early 1900s before the advent of kind of what we would consider modern technology. Um, it's extremely optimistic. Uh, it's laying a philosophical groundwork for humanity that, that's kind of taking charge of its own evolutionary process. And so I have two main questions. Uh, first, do we think that he's right? Um, like it or not, are we in charge of our future, the social, biological, spiritual future that we have? And then is he right to be optimistic? I don't know. I mean, this is this is such a messy topic that I don't... It's also, it feels a little like, like at least Huxley's arguments feel a little bit outdated in that they're looking at so much of them is trying is trying to prevent like overpopulation, which was a big concern when he was writing. And now that's just not, I mean, it's still a concern, but for some people, but most most serious folks agree it's not actually the problem that we're dealing with, at least worldwide. So I don't know. I don't have it. I mean, I don't know. So there's a lot. There's a lot of factors here, and I don't really care. And what I don't, what yeah. appeals to you about it, or if anything, does anything appeal to you about it? I mean, not really. I mean, except for like you know, you're talking about how we're not really. I, I, there, we make decisions every day to optimize our current situation and to optimize the situations of those ahead of us. And like, I don't necessarily look at that technology as a terrible thing. I mean, you look at. I mean, basic nutrition and like the benefits that's had and basic medical practices that I don't know, Sam, have you heard of seed oils? What do you mean? He hasn't heard of them. 
He hasn't heard of them. Oh no, he's one of. I don't them. think I have. No, uh, seed oils are bad and they're evil, uh, and they're conspiracies of 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 big agriculture as are over pesticided weed and you know people back in the olden days. They may not have had modern nutrition, but they weren't gluten free either. I mean, I think that you know that that that's me of all people will will rant against uh, our at least American food processing methods. I think that's more of a capitalist thing, like a modern thing. But like, I mean, if you look at like just producing enough food to not have people dying of famine worldwide constantly, I mean, that's probably good. And that's greatly changed how people live and changed, I mean, even what people look like. I don't know. I mean, is that is that transhumanist? I don't necessarily think so. Maybe I'm missing the point here. It, it's fascinating that you took it in in the direction of food in particular, because I just read a book on this. Basically, the, the the point with with transhumanism, this this article, as opposed to more recent strains of it, is that he's really talking about uh, like psychological realities and societal change as opposed to technological change. So his list, uh, he has a quote, quote, the new understanding of the universe uh, has come about through the new knowledge amassed in, in the last hundred years by psychologists, biologists, and other scientists, by archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians, end quote. So it's very much for him a story of like human psychology, society, culture transcending and that is what's like the next step of of evolution what he obviously like horribly missed is that all of that was p-hacked to hell and is not replicable so it's all fake anyway uh at least the last 50 years of it yeah i have a massive issue with that quote in that uh he called psychologists scientists yeah no i i, I mean 100 with you there he he has this this line which i think as all as several of us being fans of Walker Percy will just find hilarious. His quote is, the exploration of human nature and its possibilities have scarcely begun. Uh, no, that's not true in any meaningful way. We actually finished a long time ago and we just kind of keep going over our same steps over and over again and pretending every once in a while that we figured out something new. His entire cultural thing is completely wrong. So then what's the last plank left in transhumanism? It's technology. But technology, as we've learned, is just this massive double-edged sword. The The whole social change side of it doesn't work. And in terms of technology, all we've managed to do is we made VTubers and Instagram influencers. And that's like where our technology has gotten us and our political class is, is exactly the same or worse as it always has been. I don't know. I don't think that's a fair characterization of at least technological development. I think it's a, a double-edged sword, sure, but I think it's brought a lot more good than just than, than that I well, give it credit for. But it's not transhumanism. It, it's not changing us. Well, I, I think I dispute the technology is ineffective. I do dispute that. I would just argue, um, so I would argue that he's not justified in his optimism and that we don't have control over it. So technology can maybe not fundamentally change, change us. I would be sort of open to push back against that idea of kind of like change the fundamental nature of humanity. But I would argue that if you look at a human now versus a human 200 years ago before the car was developed or before something as simple as listening to music on your own, being almost impossible unless you yourself are playing that piece of music. Um, I would say that humanity has changed significantly in the past 200 years. We just simply don't have control over it because we can never predict how much will be changed. Think of the last 200 years, or right. not 200 years, think of the last uh, 20 years, not even 20 years, 15 years with the advent of the smartphone. That's changed our technology 
way more than people who are inventing it. Far more, far more than anyone, and far more and far differently than people could have anticipated. So I think I would be inclined to say that he is, he missed technology. I think he was being very silly with his psychology, but I think he was on something in that this is, we we, we humans back in the 19, in the early 1900s or mid 1900s were on the precipice. I think he was just wrong on where that precipice exactly lay. And I think he was also wrong in his optimism for us being able to control that press or kind of control where we go well i think also it's because you you touched on this beginning of what you said Stephen, about like where are you drawing the lines of human nature because he talks about evolution and like he could make an argument that there is no such thing as human nature the evolutionary pedigree that he probably believed in i don't i don't remember if the article really talked about it but that you were just kind of all evolving through different life forms and eventually we're going to come to a different life form that's unrecognizable from human nature as we know it now and so then if you zoom in a little bit more, like what you're talking about, about how technology changes over however much time, 200 years or 100 years or 15 years, then then like you're just, I mean, I think this is his point. Like, can you, is there something that you can do to further that process that is basically just proving that there's no such thing as nature at all? Which, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting, like when he talks about the quality of people, it's an interesting question because he's asking, can we, is there, is there any way that we've missed that, um, that we could now impact that like education, for example, was never able to do? Because that's typically how we would influence the quality of people prior to, I don't know, all these like genetic ideas that it comes from only a seed and you can never actually create something out of like the raw material of a human being that's transcendent or better. I don't know. Yeah, I think what you said, Stephen, about control is really the central aspect is that his imagining is what I would call after reading my, my book that I finished a very high modernism ideal. It's it's extremely confident in the in what technology can accomplish and that humans can control what precisely the technology does. Like in, in terms of, of, of agriculture, we were talking about that and food production. We're talking about a very specific type of food production that has all sorts of downsides that we're still just understanding, you know, with continual damage. We don't know how long modern agriculture is sustainable, frankly. And we also don't understand what he would call, you know, like superstition, uh, the tentative fumblings of our of our ancestors and their control of physical nature. Uh, that would be polycropping that, you know, Europeans and new African states tried to replace with modern, quote unquote, European agriculture, American agriculture to absolute disastrous effect because it simply didn't work in the environment and polycropping was the way to do it. And we still don't understand how precisely that all works or all the interactions that happen in a complex natural system or the sustainability over time. Control is the central point. Uh, and then also the the optimism is, the, you know, we, we're definitely going somewhere and we're going somewhere fast. But the idea that we're that it's transcending and improving in every metric like he seems to assume is is you know not n not a viable assumption and it's frankly pretty surprising that he's that he has this take um given that he's writing in the 1950s uh 1957 i believe to be specific it seems that like one of the things that postmoderns got or the postmodernists got right is that modernism was far too optimistic um, it led to World War One and World War Two. It led to the trenches. It led to the gas chambers. Hey, maybe we were too optimistic and maybe the postmodernists went too far in deconstructing everything. But I think they were onto a kernel of an idea that modernity was at its core project quite broken. We all know about the Enlightenment project of justifying morality. Um, so if anything, 
Exactly. Um, so if anything, he seems almost kind of out of date. It, it, like, we read him and be like, come on, man, get with the times. I have a feeling people were reading him at that time and saying, come on, man, get with the times. Like, what's what's going on here? Um, like, did he not witness what humanity did at the apex of, at least his time, at the apex of its technology? It made databasing systems to catalog Jews and then send them to the concentration camps. We should not be overly optimistic about human nature here. Yeah, that's always my question about all of these like techno, here's how we're going to advance humanity ideas. Is like, do you understand good and evil? Like, really, have you ever even thought about it? Because if you don't, and you just think that advancement is good, then you're always going to end up in some kind of totalitarian nonsense, which he doesn't ever really address, right? He never really talks about like political abuses, like everything that the United Nations was founded on this idea, like everyone has these universal rights, and we want to make sure that nobody has to experience all of these various terrible things that governments have done to them and genocides and like torture and all this stuff from conflict, like, I think that like the modern political system is in some ways a response to like all the bad things of human nature, the ideas of checks and balances. And so it's so it's kind of weird that that just doesn't make it into <laughs> your your philosophy of human advancement at all. Yeah, this essay does seem almost a quaint throwback to a lot of the moderns optimistic, hey, we're going to change the world and everything's going to be great. Almost this this very, to I guess, use McGill Christian language, like the, the left hemisphere, the idea that you have, you've constructed this very artificial, very idealized society where everyone just does what you say. You organize it in such a way you can snap your fingers and all of these structures are now in place. And then all these theories get uh, get played out in reality. And, and even just a simple question of, yeah, but what if people say no? What if people just don't like that? That's my objection to the pronatalist couple. What if your kids just turn out wrong? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the left hemisphere doesn't like that. Yeah, it's true. And I think what you said about knowing good from evil is sort of the the key question for anyone who's working in these spaces. But it's also the key question for us right now as we go into our bioethics quiz. And I have eight questions here, some with multiple parts. And we are just gonna we are just gonna blaze through this and see who we've is been the going best. for two hours, and you're throwing a quiz at us. It hasn't been two hours yet, Sam. And we are going to see who the best bioethicist of us all. And only one of us has a degree in this. All right, first question. And this will be a, there are six points available in this question. And if you get to it first, you might be able to just get a whole bunch of them. All right, ready? Where in the U.S. is physician-assisted dying legal? Steven. Washington, California, and Oregon. I'm going to go with those three. I don't know the rest. Those are all correct. Vermont, New York. Um, actually, that's all I know off the top of my head. So, But I think I should get Washington, too, because obvious reasons. <laughs> oh, I didn't actually have Vermont or New York. I wonder if the map I don't I believe had was I don't outdated, believe but I don't think that's accurate. For Does that means she gets negative I, two points? I've looked into this. I'm, sa I'm safe here, guys. I'm just envisioning Sam going into the hospital and be like, hey, hey, doc, the, uh, the, the condition's acting up. Sorry, best I can do is death. The other ones that I had on my list was Washington, D.C., Colorado, and Montana are, are, are our three. So I'm, I'm going to give three points Montana. to Stephen. I was right about Vermont, but I was wrong about New York. So, all right. So, but Allison, yeah, Oregon, Oregon, Washington, Montana, Vermont, California, Colorado, D.C., Hawaii, New Jersey, Maine, and New Mexico. Maybe I was thinking of New Jersey when I said uh, over in New Jersey. Well, you can never everything there. So you said one right one and one wrong one, but you do also have to work in Washington. So, Allison, I'm going to give you one point off of all that. Yeah, I would have said Washington because I've literally dealt with this in my job in Washington. So. Yeah. That's why I think I deserve that one. 
Next question. A big part of pronatalism.org is a massive Google Docs document that is all the ways that you can save money as with your pronatalist family, because if you're going to have lots of kids, money's going to be a problem. And so there's all sorts of tax evasion strategies uh, in order to evade taxes with your large family. So here is a question, and this is each of you will give me a number, whoever's closest wins. What in our tax code is the gift tax annual exclusion? What amount of money can you give to your children without it being taxed? Yeah, you you all answer, and then we'll do who, who, whoever's closest. Price is right rules. I'm going to say $5 million. Okay, $5 million. I'm going to go much lower, eight grand. And Sam. Wow, and I'm saying 100000 And you guys are all way over. It's $17,000, so that's a point for Steven. Let's oh, go. wait. What do I think? Oh, I'm thinking of the estate tack. Okay. Oh, well. Oh, gift tack. Yeah. All right. Right now, uh, Stephen, four points. Allison, one. Next question. Name one person on the President's Council for Bioethics without using Wikipedia. And this is the, the, the one that existed under George Bush from, I believe, 2002 to 2009, and then Obama banished it. Allison. Ezekiel Emanuel. Let me check my list. I do not think so. Really? Any other guess? Okay, Francis Leon Collins. Francis Collins. No. Leon Cast. Yes, he was in fact the chairman. So I'm going to give a point. Actually, yeah. Well, you guys can keep guessing. Keep guessing. I'll I'll guess until I tell you to stop. Alistair McIntyre. No. I just no. just let me dream. Sam, this is a gimme to you because you know multiple um, of these people on the bioethics council. Yeah. Yeah, you probably do. No, uh, like you mean I know them personally. Uh, no. you know uh, you know about them. How about Charles Camosi? He's probably not, but no. Think another Charles, but more media y. Um, Charles Charles Murray? No. More media y. Charles Schumer? Oh, uh, Char Charles Cook? No. 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 There's no. Okay. I, sorry. I, I don't know. I mean, I, this is just this is so outside the wheelhouse, as has probably been evident by this whole episode. So I have no no idea. Okay, who's best friends with Cornell West? Oh, Robbie George. Yes. Sam gets a point because I. Oh, correct. I Thanks. They had to give it to him. <laughs> uh, all right, and then one more uh, honorary mention: presidential candidate later on. Uh, Rick Santorum. No. No. This Asa Hutch Hutchinson. This is a bioethics council. Think doctor. Oh, oh, um, Ben Carson. That is correct. Yeah. Ben Carson was on this, as was uh, Peter Lawler, Charles Krauthammer, uh, and James Q. Wilson for a time. Yeah. All right. That's two points for Sam, one point for Allison. Uh, Steven is still in the lead. Next question. How many two-headed dogs did Vladimir Demikov make? You all just give me a number. Price three. is right. Zero. And Sam? Uh, three. You can't give the same number. Wait, wait, who gave, wait, who gave what answer? It might have blanked out. What are the answers? Three, zero, and now whatever you say. Oh, five. For our listener, Allison signed zero to us. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the answer is 20. Um, so Sam gets that point. And the question is, what was the oh. longest one of these dogs lived? Here we go, six months. Six months? 24 hours. Uh, three days. Sam, with the prices right rules win, it was one month. The wow. moment I said six months, I reconsidered. I was like, no, I should go like a week. That's a long time. That is a long time. I, I was researching, like, what are the craziest science experiments ever done? The most horrifying ones so I could find fodder for this quiz. Oh, jeez. According to pronatalism.org, uh, which of the following reasons is not a proposed legitimate business activity for the family LLC that you should create in order to, again, hide your taxes? Biotechnology research, pet sitting or dog walking, database management, consulting or coaching services, drone services, or renewable energy consulting or installation. Only one of these is not a real one. That's it. Wait, list them off one more time. Biotechnology research 
pet sitting or dog walking service, database management, consulting or coaching services, drone services, renewable energy consulting or installation. Only one of these is not real. Pet sitting, 100%. Okay, Stephen says pet sitting. I'm just going to say renewable energy. Allison says I renewable think, energy. I think, I think bioethics. That would be really funny. It's not bioethics. It's biotechnology. Oh, biotechnology, that one. Uh, all of you are wrong. It's database management. All of the rest of them are legitimate family LLC activities that you should use to hide your taxes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We live in a society. I know. Uh, next question, number seven. Who is Robute Gilliman? Oh, he's in 40K. He's the son of the uh, the emperor. Nerd. That was put here to trap you specifically, Stephen. I don't even. I, I I looked up a 40k name just so I could ask that question, and so you would know the answer. You get minus points. <laughs> I was going to say I have never heard of that person, but I've also never yeah. played a video game. So Sam's in the lead with four. Stephen went down to three. That's you? depressing, guys. All right, final question. Uh, this is a flavor of trans of transhumanism called extropianism. Give me. If you can think of any characteristic of this type of transhumanism, I will give you a point. I will tell you it's acrostic. Like extropism is a extropism is a what uh initialism. Is it well, a melding I, of some kind of technology with the mind? Extropianism. Yeah, kind of. It's something to do with climate, I would say. Okay. I think okay, I'm gonna guess it's like it's like a having an exoskeleton. Like you have some kind of mm. steel man body maybe interfacing with your mind. I, I'm okay. going to say it's developing through technology or whatever the ability to live outside of planet. Uh, I mean, you're all kind of close. So extropianism is endless extension transcending restriction overcoming property intelligent and smart machines basically they want immortality and to exist in a that world that sounds where artificial... really nice <laughs> and to yeah, exist in a cool. world where artificial intelligence and robotics do all of the work don't they know that you could just pursue union with christ and you could probably get that <laughs> <laughs> they've never heard of that i'm just going to give you all a point because uh they're sad um so our final score actually with the surprise win, Sam is our bioethicist of 2024, followed by Mr. Steven. Uh, and finally, Allison, I'm sorry, <laughs> yes. your degree is worth the paper it's printed on. I've been dethroned as the resident bioethicist of the podcast. I am so under protest right now. Next time, Sam has to answer all the bioethics questions. <laughs> Including all of his, like, vast experience taking care of uh, people. <laughs> taking care of himself. Oh, jeez. That's cruel. <laughs> I think if we forced him to do that, or if we forced Stephen to do another bioethics quiz with questions specifically targeted to him, I am, I, I, I'm, like, kind of aghast that that worked, Stephen. I did not think that would work that perfectly uh but anyway steven seems mad and when we're mad we rant sam what do you got uh the republican primary is wrapping up with the decisive victory of donald trump and i've talked about this so many times i talked about it last primary season this is hilarious that we are going to have the one outcome that most of america does not want so i don't want to say any more about it it's terrible i'm mad brevin knows i'm mad and and then of course all the cases are getting are have have critical flaws in them that they don't need to have. So it's just it's just depressing. All right. Uh, well, for my rant, I'm going to come a little closer to home and is more of a a rant against well both my child and myself, uh, which is to say this new part of me that I've discovered in in recent weeks, which is this sudden like clenching of my chest and incandescent rage when I see my child grabbing food out of her bowl and saying dump. 
very cheerfully and just like dropping it over the side of the high chair. And I, you, you can't stop it. You are never fast enough to stop it. And you know, it's going to go down and spill all over the floor. And she's like, oh, and, and what's even worse is when she's like, oh, clean, clean. And she just like starts doing her hand across it to like clean it off. Like she's helping and just spraying things all over the floor that I have to go clean up. And I have to somehow react in a way that's like, yeah, clean. You're doing great. Uh, but also, like, you know, contain my deep, deep pain. Uh, so, like I said, it's more of a personal flaw than anything else. Uh, but that is something that I have gotten like, actually angry about against my better judgment oh. over the past few weeks. Oh, boy. You, uh, you, you, are, you are only at the beginning here. I know. Oh, I man. Know. You've got don't, it. <laughs> don't you worry. It'll, it'll get burned out of me soon enough. Uh, but speaking of someone whose rage is still burning, Steven. It is. It is still burning, but I'll uh, direct it towards um, an electrodynamics class. So, two years ago, I took a grad-level electrodynamics class, and this was the most difficult class I've ever taken. Uh, made more difficult by a professor whose teaching was pretty shoddy. Um, he would skip past important explanations, he'd hand-wave calculations, etc., etc. Standard stuff I have with teaching. This class was also one of the harshest I've ever had in its grading. Uh, homework was far from a free A. Quizzes were graded even more strictly than the homework. The final doubled as the qualifying exam for the physics grad students, and so this was used as a weeder course as well. Um, the vast majority of the points were found in the five quizzes and final exams, and I slid by with the only 3.5 I've ever earned, and was intensely grateful for that. I actually remember opening the grade and half expecting to be told, like, yeah, you failed this class. Um, while I look back on that class and shudder in a semi-traumatized manner, I also view it as my chronic achievement as far as classes are concerned. It was a difficult class, and I passed it. Which brings me to the new incarnation of this class. I mentioned that I didn't really like this teacher's lecture style, and I stand by that. And I was too slammed with other classes and research topics to really dig into the material back then, so I decided to audit it this year. And when I attended the first class, uh, or the first class session, I was introduced to the new standards. The new professor took pains to say that these standards were much higher than the previous year at the request of the students. The students insisted that it be made more rigorous. These standards are, homework is graded on a three-point scale, zero for nothing turned in, half for any effort at all, whatever. And a, he, he said, a picture of your dog counts. And it is full credit for good faith effort. Correctness is not required. Basically, you need to show some sort of logical reason. There is a single quiz for the midterm that is worth 5% of the grade, and the final is worth 15%. And he took pains to say that effort and homework will get you a passing grade. You cannot show up to either the midterm or the final and you will get a passing grade. He also took pains to say that he hates grading standards and wishes to, quote, burn the system down, end quote, which I have taken as the most mask off statement to have ever graced the academy. This combined with other times that perhaps I'll, I'll have more rants uh, for future, which I have already uh, intoned to Brevin and Sam at uh, another time, but there are new professors who are teaching the next, next generation of physicists and engineers, you know, the ones who build our bridges and our buildings. God help us all. I like how we now know that there is a not insubstantial audience at your in your department who listens to this podcast so i'm going to enjoy your water cooler conversations after this but speaking of water cooler conversations our water cooler conversation about bioethics will have to come to an end here because we are nearly two hours in and some of us do need to sleep tonight any final thoughts 
Wait, doesn't Allison get a rant? I am so sorry. I am a moron. Uh, Allison, your rant. Well, I was thinking about doing it on traffic, but then Stephen's story reminded me of the college class that I think Brevin and Sam were also in. I think Brevin was in it with me, which was my least favorite college class. And your description of like how hard the homework was, was thankfully the opposite of my experience in this class, where I basically didn't pay any attention uh, and I still somehow passed the class, which I've never done in any class before or since. It was a physics class, but it didn't actually teach anything. Did Sam or Revan, did you did you learn anything in that class? I learned how to look up online how the reflection of a barn in a water pool looks like because I just got mad. Yeah, and I spent most of the class um, sitting at the table, which happened to be a uh, like a whiteboard drawing pictures, and I learned how to write backward with my left hand during that class. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just write out song lyrics and poems and other interesting things. And um, the, I think the crowning achievement of that class was when Revan's wife and I took a cue from the back of, was it? It was like whack that we were molding. It was, it was a container of wax and we were supposed to mold it into candle holders for this project at the end of the class. And the warning on this container said, warning, do not mold into candle holders. <laughs> so we drew a safety dragon on the whiteboard with this warning that we were not supposed to mold the wax into candle holders. It's by far the most ridiculous college class experience I ever had. And I'm not really sure how I passed that class because I don't remember a single thing from it. See, this class, this class, I took it after you guys. And I not only paid attention, I tried really hard and I almost flunked out. Well, didn't the TA dislike you? <laughs> well, there was that. But <laughs> I mean, in a class this dumb, I figured there was only like, like a personal vendetta should only bring me down to a B in an automatic A class. But no, it was all the way down to like a C minus. I got a B and I assure you I did nothing. I mean, I'm not really sure what I did for the homework. But <laughs> I will say we had like a very interesting part at the end of the class that was about climate change, which I learned a little bit because I was a freshman in college and had not learned anything about climate change. But other than that, it was the most useless thing I've ever encountered. I wish I knew about physics. I really do. But I, I that's my the extent of my experience, unfortunately. It's a lovely topic that the, uh, the current physicists are doing everything they can to destroy any love of learning it. <laughs> Indeed. Well, after my first failed attempt, I'm just gonna get right to it. This has been an excellent conversation. Thank you, Allison, for coming back, our resident consulting bioethicist, the bioethicist chair of the Problem with Reading podcast. I think that's Sam at this point. <laughs> he keeps winning the quizzes. <laughs> In the new academic year, yes. Uh, but rigged. until then, All right. for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And I'm Allison. And get out there and be ethical. Doesn't her being the residence ethicist mean that, like, she's a permanent part? Like, or resident consulting, isn't that a, a contradiction <laughs> in terms? Like, if she's resident, then she's here. If she's consulting, that means she just shows up every so often and, and consults. Yeah, think, I don't think I'm the resident bioethicist I mean, it's anywhere. just like, I, I'm the I'm the resident special guest. So, like, that is true. Sam is the permanent special guest. <laughs>
That was like two hours on the dot. This is who Stephen knew who it was. Through you. I won that quiz, okay? I won it. And yes, I went through like a year-long obsession with 40K. I'm not proud of it, but guys, I'm getting a PhD in computational math, okay? Like, like you knew I was a nerd. You knew. You, you knew. We're all, we're all nerds. Thank you. <laughs> That's why we're on this podcast. Freaking trap questions losing me a point. I just love how enthusiastic you were. I was excited because I was going to win. 